When we started our journey in investing, our goal was to own three single-family houses to pay for our future kids' college. Now, at the end of this deal, we'll have over 60 million in real estate holdings. I'm 33 years old, so if things continue to go right and the dominoes keep falling the way that they are, we should be very financially well off. So the question that we're talking about right now is what is enough? What is our current and future life going to look like? Welcome to the Financial Freedom Fast Podcast. The show that teaches you how to buy back your time and live life on your terms. Learn how to confidently leave your nine to five from guests who've done it themselves. Whether you want to lay on a beach, travel the world, or focus on your passions, this show will give you the tools to do what you want when you want. Now, here's your host, Matt Amabio. What is up, Financial Freedom Fest fam? Today we've got on Ben Call. Ben is one of my good buddies from a coaching group that we were both a part of, and Ben has taken off. When we first started that coaching group, I think he was in around 10 million dollars or so of real estate. And he is about to, within two years of being in that group, he's now about to be at $60 million in real estate holdings. Absolutely nuts. Ben is creating an amazing life for himself and he's doing it through self-storage. He goes through in this episode, step-by-step, how to buy a self-storage facility, how to find a self-storage facility, how to get it funded, what size he thinks you should go for and what size makes sense, and then how to add value to these storage facilities. So valuable, and I met him all through a coaching program. That's why coaching is really important, guys. Not only do you get to be coached and have your mindset changed and be in a different aspect yourself, but you also get to meet other people along that journey that are trying to do the same thing. So, If you're interested in coaching and you're interested in being in a community, reach out to me. I do have my own community, my own coaching program that teaches investors how to partner on deals and find partners to get deals done. And if you are just interested in any other type of coaching, I've got a heavy list of people who do the same thing in other areas of real estate, life coaching, peak performance coaching. Reach out to me, let me know. And without further ado, let's jump into the pod. Ben Call, welcome to the Financial Freedom Fest podcast. What is going on, my brother, my man, my dude? How are you doing today? Hey Matt, this is uh, this is pretty exciting. I met you probably two years ago now when we first started our journey into both coaching and the financial freedom and everything else. So it's pretty amazing to be here with you today and just talking before we started recording about everything we've been up to. Dude, a lot of crazy stuff has happened since then. And we'll get into what we were talking about a little bit on camera. But at that point, when you and I met, we were both kind of figuring things out. I think you were probably around like 20 million, 25 million in assets that that you owned at that point. Is that right? Just shy of 10, actually. Just shy. Oh, my dude. Oh, we are about to go off on the people today, dude. This is going to be awesome, man. 
Yeah. And when we first met, like I was still in my job. I was still trying to figure out how I would ever get out of it. And, and that group inspired me. I don't know if you remember, if you were at, on, on those calls, but like they were like, just set the date, set a timeline that you have to get this done by and go and do it. And because of the inspiration and the motivation from the people who have already done these things and who are doing big things, I was able to say, I'm just going to go do this, man. I'm going to follow what these people are saying and get it done. So it's 100%. That was about two years ago. And you were working at W2. You hated your job. And it basically took surrounding yourself with like-minded people to get the confidence to do it. For me, it was the same thing. I was a pretty successful real estate agent. And I was at the time just starting my investment journey. And things were going really well. But the people I started to surround myself with, I wasn't going nearly as fast or nearly as big or thinking big enough and setting crazy goals because I was intimidated because I didn't surround myself with the people who wanted to do and accomplish those things in life. Mm -hmm. So by joining the mastermind and investing in coaching and doing all these things, look at where you and I are at today. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, man. It's upward curve, man. It happens quick when you start to surround your people with yourself with the people who do this stuff quick and make it happen. And I heard heard you on a podcast one time talking about how you were never really big into social media. You didn't really put yourself out there, but you got to be pitching some pretty big deals and you had to get over this fear. Like you had to do that for yourself. And I know one day like you were thinking about sending out like some type it was to get on to podcasts actually. And you were sitting there at a table with, I think it was like Investor Girl Brit and like Brandon Turner was there. And just having yourself surrounded by these people, you were just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to send out all these messages and make this happen, dude. But anyway, let me introduce you, everybody. We've got Ben Call on the podcast today. So hyped up. I would say Ben is a huge expert in the storage space, but all around, Ben has is a hardworking, motivated guy football player, played in college, started building up his portfolio after that, buying all types of commercial property, which we will dig into, buying a stupidly massive deal right now. He owns about 40 million or so, his current portfolio. And now he's buying an $18.6 million under contract facility. I am so excited to dive into this. Ben, let's start off by telling the people, like, you're not the, and I'm sorry to say it like this, Ben, but you're not like this crazy professional, wear a suit and tie, I know my business stuff type of guy. You're just an average old guy that we've met in person. We're both average old guys that are doing cool stuff, dude. So tell us, like, how did your life progress from like when you went, you were playing football in college and then you you moved through and saw a life that could be different and then started to create this and went all into buying assets? Dude, so it's this is this whole journey is just so new and just so wild for me. And when you just said what you said to intro me. I just got butterflies because I still don't believe like this is my life and this is what we're all starting to do because of what we're doing in these masterminds. But no, it's wild to think about and it's wild to hear you say a little bit about what I've been able to do. So I grew up in Minnesota, went and played college football and got a degree at Kansas State University. 
once I got done playing, I got hired onto the coaching staff and thought it was an absolute dream to get done playing and coaching at the division one level. I got married and that's just not what we envisioned our life to be. And so we really needed to pivot. So I moved back home, become a real estate agent and started surrounding myself with clients. And it just happened that a few of my first clients as a real estate agent were investors. And I didn't know anything about it, but I said, yeah, I'll help you. And so really what I did is I just dove in and started learning and I started reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, listening to Bigger Pockets and just turn the fire hose and learn so I could represent my clients as much as humanly possible and get them the best deals possible. And then I started a property management company to try to financially benefit even further to get some recurring revenue because as an agent, you have no idea when you're going to get a paycheck. So I started a property management company and that was a poor man's version of passive income because as long as I kept my clients' properties full, I knew what I was going to get paid every month. But because of that, I learned even more about investing, structuring deals, how to vet tenants, all the things that go along with it. And finally, I woke up and realized that I'm making other people substantial amounts of money. They're living a fantastic life. And it was just this light bulb when I was mowing lawns one day that, you know, basically I need to do this myself. So I started considering it. And I just started quietly putting feelers out to some of my clients who I managed their things for. And a guy basically came to me and said, Ben, I just got some financials on a storage facility. You've been a, an amazing operator for mine. And I know you're a lot younger. I have no, no idea how much money you actually have to invest, but I want you to partner with me because this is bigger than I could ever do on my own and I need you to operate it. And that was in 2018. And that's when I bought my very first investment property. It was a self-storage facility. So since that time, it was the biggest eye-opening and best investment I ever made because I took the leap. And because of then, my first investment was commercial real estate. And I realized that what I was doing at the self-storage investment, it is no different than the single family homes I was managing for some clients. And so basically it was just this like level jump of confidence over the first couple of years in this new industry as being a real estate agent manager. And then you get your first distribution from being an investor and you're like, holy shit, this is awesome. Why don't I do this faster? And then you basically just go all in and kind of gave a little background on what I've been able to accomplish since 2018. And I'm having more fun than I've ever had in my entire life. And I know you travel a lot. I spent five weeks last year traveling and three of which were out of the country. You just couldn't paint a better picture. And it's only the beginning. Dude, and that's it, man. It's only the beginning. And like all of this is starting off. So you, how old are you? You're like early 30s, right? 33. 33, dude. Like this is literally like most people aren't doing have the flexibility that you and i have until they're 60 dude and now what we get is full amounts of our time to you're already on a hockey stick but now that hockey stick is in the future once it double triple quadruple hockey sticks is gonna look like the small curve on the way up to the hockey stick which is just amazing can't wait to see like what that looks like. And honestly, what you're doing right now is amazing, dude. As long as this 18.6 moves through, man, that's around $60 million of assets that have been purchased and executed on by 2018. 
five years, man, that is that's around ten million dollars, more than ten million dollars, twelve and a half mil per year, twelve mil per year of assets acquired. And mind you, mind everyone, right? This is a step by step. The hockey stick. It works like that, right? We maybe year one we buy one million, then year two we buy two five million, then. 15 million, and it just keeps going up and up. So what I want to dig into, I want to go back to when you said you got married, and that's not what like you and your wife were doing your things, and you took a look at each other, and you said, this is not what life, what we thought life would be. Like, what was that realization? What was missing? And what made you realize that I want something more? So both my wife and I were college athletes, right? And so surrounding yourself with like-minded people is what we just talked about now being entrepreneurs. But at that time, it was athletes. It was people who enjoyed working out, the camaraderie of a team and building towards successful teams. And I was now coaching. We have a state-of-the-art facility. We're sponsored by Nike. I'm recruiting high school kids from all over the world. And my job is coaching college football and watching highlight tapes. Mm -hmm. Like, pretty sweet job for someone in their 20s. And it was great. However, my breakfast, lunch, dinner, laundry, weight room was all at my office, which was a football facility. And I was working from 6 a.m. to about 11 at night, pretty much year round. I was more addicted to my cell phone than I am now as an investor and real estate agent because I was recruiting kids from all over the country. I was at night playing Xbox with kids because that's part of the recruiting strategy and building relationships with people in Texas and on the Polynesian islands. So I'm just sitting here and I'm like, all right, I'm working literally a hundred hours a week. I'm addicted to my cell phone. I haven't had dinner with my newly married wife in over six months. Hell no, this is not what we want any longer. Imagine like when we have kids, I won't be able to go to their sporting games. I won't be able to coach them. Right. And we said, what are we going to do? And I really just had basically the inspiration to get in what I got into is my best friend, he was the best man at my wedding, was a real estate agent in my hometown that was starting to flip houses. And he was doing really well. He showed me a paycheck and I'm like, sold. See you in a couple months and moved back home and got into it. So the money, you saw that check, you were like, damn, that could move stuff along. So then you went aging, you went PM, and then ultimately got asked to come into the investor realm and then skyrocketed from there. So 2018, you partner with this guy who you were managing properties for. Let me hear about that deal. How much money did you have to bring? What was your role? Uh, how much equity did you get in this property? And then what did the returns and distributions look like on that first facility? Yeah, no, all really good questions. So I was really young. And when we started, I'd only been a real estate agent for two years. And if you talk to anybody who's just getting into real estate, it's a really slow start. Mm -hmm. So we're being former athletes are usually very disciplined. So one of the things we did financially, my wife and I, is we set a yearly budget and we lived our entire life originally off my wife's income. And all my income that I earned as a real estate agent went into a savings account. And then we would use that money the following year to pay ourselves a salary because we would have a better idea of what we were going to do. So essentially, we stockpiled the little amount of money that I earned as an agent. So when the storage opportunity came along, we did have some money in the bank. So this was a $1.5 million storage deal. We put down 25%. 
And because of the cash that I had available, it was a JV or a joint venture. And the easiest structure that we could come up with, because we both didn't have much experience in partnerships and complex real estate deals, we just said, how much money do you got? How much money do you got? And that was ownership percentage. So in that deal, I was a 20% partner because that's the amount of cash I could come up with. How much, curious, over your year of being an agent, how much cash did that allow you to stockpile in, in this separate bank account? So this very first storage deal, I invested just over $75,000. 75 grand and you got 20% in a, it was a $1.2 million facility? 1.5. $1.5 million facility. And then how much, what would you value that facility at today? Do you still own that facility? <laughs> that facility is worth $4.8 million today. We just had an appraisal done because we're doing an expansion and it's unbelievable. It was my first investment ever to still have it. We, uh, we worked really hard the first few years. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. And self-storage wasn't the sexy asset class that it is today. Bigger Pockets started talking about it. AJ Osborne became very popular around social media. And he is the king of self-storage. Mm. So it's really popular. But back then, no one knew about it. And so we quietly implemented all of our strategies. And I started operating it. And we just quietly grew it. We added security. We added online renting. We added recurring payments for credit cards. And we just built it up. And we didn't take a distribution for almost two years because we didn't know what we were getting into and we didn't know what could go wrong. So we didn't take a distribution for two years, not because we weren't making money, just because there was so much unknowns. Right. And so we wanted to stay disciplined and do that. And then finally, once we realized, we're like, wow, we know what we're doing. And these distributions, the money just keeps coming in. Let's start taking distributions. Every quarter, I've made my $75,000 back times three or four already, just on cash flow. Just on cash flow, you could pay yourself back. Now, like thinking about equity, like just for everyone like sitting out there, if you were if, if, with the new valuation on this building, let's just say it had the original. 1.5 let's say there was 1.5 in debt in it which there there probably was it was probably like 1.1 in debt or 1.2 in debt we have 900,000 left on our mortgage 900,000 left on the mortgage right so at 4.8 mil let's say a bank comes in and this is like a super low estimate I, let's say so the a bank gives you you want to cash out refi and you take 60% out on this thing 2.8 million that means that they're from you and your partner, there's about $2 million to split, and you would be able to take around a million dollars in cash and still have that being a cash-flowing asset, man. If that's not something, like that's a million dollars from one freaking deal that you created in five years, and now you've got all these other deals too. The thing I love about that partnership, man, is, and I stress partnerships so much, I'm like, if you are young, you don't have capital, you don't have all of the knowledge that you think you may need, partner, it's like a cheat code. It's like going with someone that can get deals done, either has time, capital, or knowledge. And you, it's not like one Yu-Gi-Oh card versus the other Yu-Gi-Oh card. It's like you take two Yu-Gi-Oh cards, you put them together. Now you've got even more power going and you can get bigger things done, take down bigger monsters, which I think is amazing. Love the transparency throughout your partnership where you were like, how much money do you have? Here's my bank account. 
here's my bank account. This is what we can get done. This is how we can get it done. Love that, man. So let's take it on. The thing that I would add is that I have essentially two partners in my business. The one Mm -hmm. I just referred to, we were both former athletes. He played Mm -hmm. college volleyball. I played college football. So that's what attracted us when he hired me to be his property manager. So essentially, we got to date for about four years in business because I was operating his things. I understood how he was as an owner because if I saw the ability to add value in his apartment portfolio, he let me spend the money. He let me operate it as I thought because I could make him more money. So we got essentially date for four years before we got married. And you know, getting into a partnership, especially if it's legally binding and you're getting into a real estate deal, you really got to vet each other. Don't just, don't just partner to partner. Don't just partner right. because you like each other. Or you met each other on social media. It's right. a very serious deal. And especially if you grow into managing other people's money. Yeah. When you start managing other people's money, you have their retirement at stake. You have their kids' college funds at stake. So don't take partnering lightly. But- the two partnerships that I have changed my life and I couldn't be any happier. And we work extremely well together, but I was very choosy on the people that I've decided to partner with. And that's something that I talk about too as well, is this dating period, this idea of if you do want to partner with someone, cap one capital isn't, I'm not going to say it's easy to find, but money can be found almost anywhere in the world, right? You want someone who brings skills. You want someone who fits your values, your ethics, your morals as a business person, has similar drives to you, has a similar motivation, has the same long-term goal that you're going to be building to. Because if you have this same vision that you can both build out into, that's when you can create something really great and be working towards a mutual goal, definitely. And the dating period, so important to make sure that you're not going to have to get divorced at some point and there's going to be some issue. Obviously, you can't fully mitigate those, but we can work through them in the beginning and at least see people that we might not be compatible with. So what I want to do now, Ben, is we got this this $1.5 million facility in 2018. Now, take me through the journey like how many facilities did it take to build up to the 40 mil that you have now what did that timeline look like and then then we're going to dive into this 18 million dollar deal so the first one i bought was in the fall of 2018 and that it was a technically it was a portfolio but it's two separate locations for 1.5 million dollars and then in 2020 we with the same partner we bought two more storage facilities and during that gap between 2018 and 2020 i fell back to what was easy and i started investing in single family homes and doing a couple flips more the burst strategy because i like to be active and i got bored to be honest so i stacked up a couple single family homes And then the market continued to shot up. So I saw the opportunity to sell all of my Signifam homes actually to an investor who had reached out and I manage all of their single family homes. So I sold my entire single family portfolio to an investor that I already worked with. So I got my cash and I'm Mm -hmm. still managing those to this day. (laughs) <laughs> well, it worked out. So I sold them as a package and then I 1031 exchange into commercial property. And that was in 2021. 
And then that's when I started at the end of 2021 is when I started my private equity company. And then that's when things really took off. And so with the private equity company or syndications, I have since acquired another 25 million in real estate across Mm -hmm. multifamily and triple net across the Midwest. Wow. Amazing. So starting to bring in other people's money. And this is what you talked about earlier. It's very, it's a very serious issue to be working with other people's money. And that's why I like that you got the experience you learn. We do know what a good asset looks like. We do know how to operate these pretty well and start to to bring in other people's money to get these deals done. I want to talk about valuing. Now, a lot of our listeners are going to wonder, like, what are my steps to buy a storage facility? What does this look like? And we are going to dig into that. First, what I want to talk about is valuing a storage facility. To be honest with you, Ben, I haven't even looked into underwriting a storage facility deal. What does it look like based on cap rates, NOIs? Are cap rates typically lower or higher than multifamily in the area? How do you value out one of these storage facilities? Yeah. So for the most part, almost all commercial real estate is valued on a cap rate basis. Mm -hmm. The big difference between like triple net real estate and self-storage is that self-storage is a day-to-day operational business. So now because I have some experience and I've been doing it for a while, all I really need to value a storage facility is basically the unit mix and the rent roll. Because I don't really need to know or really care what the current operator's expenses are because I'm going to do things much differently. Obviously, I need to know what their utility expenses are and what their property taxes are. But the rest of it is all how you're going to operate the property. You know, are you going to have someone sitting on site in the office or are you going to do things remotely with an online software system similar to how Marriott? handles their booking service and online rent. So you can shave expenses really quickly depending upon how you're going to operate it. So basically I get the unit mix and the rent roll of the facility. And then I know what my expense ratios are based off how I've been operating property. But the rule of thumb for self-storage is that an expense ratio is somewhere between 35 and 40%. I typically operate at about 25 to 30% expense ratio. So that's how I can you know, offer a little bit higher on price if we're competing on a portfolio or facility, because my NOI is going to be different than the next person. I love that. You almost use like a, instead of creative financing to be able to, and maybe you do some of that, let's not even talk about that, but instead of creative financing to be able to offer higher purchase prices, you're almost doing like creative operating to be able to offer higher purchase prices. So what I'm getting from you is that realistically, storage is a good amount, at least as long as the market is stable and there's going to be a decent demand for it. Storage is a good bit about the operator. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And because it's the operator is The biggest thing is, so we'll get into the portfolio that I'm purchasing, but it's about 1,500 units, which means there's 1,500 tenants. And the average rent goes from anywhere from $45 a month up to 170. So if one tenant and a $50 unit goes delinquent, it's really easy just to let that slide because you're like, nah, it's only 50 bucks. I got another couple hundred of those. But $50 starts to add up and add up and add up. And then you can have a bunch of delinquencies where you haven't got paid for a couple months. 
So you just really need to stay on top of everything that's going on to really maximize. But yeah. at the end of the day, from being a property manager operator, you need to do that if it's multifamily. You need to do that if it's triple net. You just need to stay on top of it. So at the end of the day, in order to be successful and maximize returns, you have to have a good operator. And you said that you do things much differently. What are those things that you do? To, and now I'm going to make a crazy guess here because of your the passionate way that that you said, are you going to have somebody sit in an office or are you going to have this online system that Marriott uses? I'm <laughs> guessing that you use those online systems. What are some of these ways that you're doing things differently? Yeah. So when I bought my first facility, we were clueless. We didn't have a clue where to start. We just got the financials and looked at them and they were just like mind boggling. The lady that we bought the first one from was a widow. Her husband was the operator. So she sat in the office from eight to five, Monday through Friday. She hand wrote invoices and receipts to all 250 tenants every single month. And I just said, no matter how good of investment is, I'm not doing that. And so nobody in my area would give me any insight on how to run a facility. So I would drive around and stop in the office of every single one and say, hey, I'm buying a facility. What do I need to know? What do I need to do? How do you do it? And it was this mindset of we can't show our card because you're competition. So all I had left to fall back on was I had a couple of buddies who owned hotels and they were the only ones I knew who owned any type of commercial real estate. And I said, guys, I'm buying a storage facility. How do you run your hotels? So they basically brought me in, in the office. They showed me like what's now the Marriott Bonvoy, or the app, you know, how you can yep. schedule stuff online. They showed me how to, they use their booking service and the credit card processing. They showed me that over like Memorial Day weekend or big baseball tournaments, they increased prices. So they showed me all of these little hacks that very good hotel operators do. This was all pre-COVID. So this is when hotels were really flourishing. Yeah. And so I said, all right, this seems like it should work for me because all the leases are month to month. So I basically just started researching software systems where I could do a lot of these same things and also lock systems so I didn't have to drive out and give people keys every time a rental happened. Because I wanted the true concierge service that if you pull in with a U-Haul, you can start in, in five minutes. And then on, like we just had Memorial Day weekend. I know that it was going to be really warm outside and there was four days. So we increased our prices by 12% across our entire portfolio. And I think we got 13 rentals. So now those people are locked in at those higher rates and we can adjust them back down if people don't continue to rent. You're constantly checking the market and making sure that you're getting the most value out of your facility. And realistically, guys, right, if things are based off of a cap rate and it's based off of the net operating income and you can operate at better, more efficient levels, you're increasing your net operating income, which increases the value of the property, which is why Ben can be offering a little bit higher of a purchase price. And then if you're operating efficiently and testing out the market to be increasing income, you're going to increase your net operating income, further valuing out the building higher higher than before. What you said during this, a little bit of what you said, which I do want to touch on and get a little bit more of your opinion on this. It's a mindset thing. And I think both of us going through the JDC system and having coaches being coached by Joe Moffitt, both of us are actually coached by the same exact coach. Someone said, we can't show our cards. 
We're not going to show you what we do. We are competition. What? That's such a scarcity mindset. What are your thoughts on that statement there? It's normal. You know, that's how 99% of the world works. As a real estate agent, when I started my business, I put a giant whiteboard in my office of every single lead, what their address is, what they were looking for, what their down payment was going to be. And I just put it up there. So it would be just this thing that I would look at every day. So I would have constant follow-up and reminders to go chase my leads as a real estate agent. And I had a couple of people walk by and they said, Ben, you're not going to have any clients. These are all going to get stolen. Their phone numbers are there. And I said, no, they won't. These people are my friends, former referrals. They're going to work with me. But that's the mindset, the majority of people that I had. And through this journey, when I started with Joe, who's our both of our coaches, and joining Go Abundance and Action Academy, I've realized that the more that you put out there and are willing to help others, willing to educate, willing to coach people through their first deal, be it a house, a duplex, or a storage facility, they end up helping you in return at some point tomorrow or in three years. So the more that you're willing to give and help people, the more that you actually get in return. And the other, this is the bigger thing that I've learned, is if I literally spill my entire set of cards to the world, 95% of people will not even take the first step to try to accomplish anything that we're talking about today. There's no reason to hold back and not help people. There's no reason. It's fully a scarcity mindset. And there's so many deals out there to be had that even if somebody does come in and try and nab one and steal all that, like they're going to put themselves in a bad mindset that they're stealing other people's stuff. And it's just not going to work out well for them. So you might as well have an abundance mindset, be out there and putting yourself out there, putting your stuff out there, hoping for the greatest of good for everyone, your yourself, your competitors, your clients, your employees, whoever it is, and working through that. So Ben, now let's transition. We're going to, I, what I want to talk about is if somebody's listening right now and they say, I want to buy a storage facility, and I do have someone who is mentoring with me right now who is interested in getting into a storage facility, let's call it a million dollar facility. Nothing crazy. And then we're going to jump into the crazy $18.6 million facility that we have under contract right now. But let's just go through like step by step. What does it look like to, if somebody wanted to get a facility, one, how are we finding deals? Two, does it go to analysis then? Three, do you raise money? Do you get the, your own money? What type of banks do we need to go through? Take us through it like we're f- five-year-olds. How can we buy a storage facility? Yeah. So I'm looking at larger facilities now. I have almost five to seven years under my belt and a lot of experience. Um, But if you're looking for your first facility, I think two things you need to decide right away. How hands-on do you need to be? And if you're willing to be really hands-on, you can look at some smaller facilities that are 60 to 100 units. But if you buy those, there's not enough income to support being able to hire a property manager. So I knew that I'm capable of doing some of the things myself, but because I want my time back, I need to look to try to find that sweet spot of what is the right size where I can still afford to buy it, but I can also hire help. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I looked at a square footage and a unit count. 
And so I realized that I needed to look for storage facilities that were roughly 250 units or more, or 30 to 40,000 square feet of rentable area. And so that was the first criteria that I set because I knew at that size, I would have the right amount of income coming in to be able to add a little bit expense to hire help. And hiring help means plowing snow, mowing the lawn, changing springs, changing locks, doing the various things that do come up. And so that was my initial thing. And so once I found that, I realized that if a good real estate deal comes online or a broker is marketing it, it's going to be at a cap rate that I just can't afford or don't have the specific returns that are going to make sense for me. I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and making money passively and getting a good return is still really important. Not from a greed standpoint, but because I want to live my life off of my passive investments. So if you're buying something at a six cap, you're not going to get an eight to 10% cash on cash return. So I need to buy stuff off market, specifically with storage. So what I did is I knew that I needed to start looking for facilities that were 250 units or 30,000 square feet or bigger. So then I basically just went on a map and went, okay, I'm willing to drive up to an hour from my house or office. Let's find every single storage facility within an hour of me. And you can do a quick online search, but the ones who already have good Google business pages and good websites are probably ones that aren't going to sell because they've transacted recently. So it literally takes looking in the yellow pages, looking on property records, or just purely driving around to find the ones that don't have websites yet. And those are the ones that I really wanted to target. So what I did is it was direct to seller. And these are people that have owned these for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And so it's really easy to find their information because it's owned under their personal name. So if you're getting on the public records, you can look up their personal name and where they actually live. So you can start sending mailers to their house or literally drive up and knock on the front door and say, hey, I'm Ben, I want to buy your storage facility. How can we make it happen? And so that's really what it took. And so that's what my quote unquote buy box was when I was getting started and starting to hunt. And now that I'm getting bigger and looking for larger facilities, the criteria is literally the same, but it's just bigger. So the big things that I look for aside from the size requirements is I want to look for facilities that don't have Google business pages, that don't have websites where somebody can rent it online and you can see the prices. Those are the big things where I've learned if they don't offer those, there's a lot of value to be had. Mm -hmm. Because what it tells me is they don't have the efficiencies and concierge that I talked about with kind of the hotel mindset. Right. And if I can find one of those facilities, I just know because of my experience now that I can instantly, the day that I buy it, increase rents by 15 to 20%. Right. Because people pay for convenience. And for example, I just had a competitor develop and build a storage facility across the highway for me. And initially, I had that fear mindset that said, shit, I'm going to have to lower my prices. My occupancy is going to go down. So all I did is start boosting some ads on my Facebook page and just really focus on getting reviews. I have increased my prices almost 15% over the last two years. Because I offer that concierge of ability to rent online and the guy across the street doesn't. So people pay for convenience and that's something that I've learned. 
again, to summarize, 250 units or 30,000 square feet or more, people that don't have websites or Google business pages, and people that can't rent conveniently online quickly is what I would recommend for people to start looking at. Dude, that's and this is a lesson to anyone, whatever type of asset type that you are looking for, get crystal clear on what you want. You can't find something. You can't hit a target if you don't have a target. We need a target. And Ben just gave you, if you are looking for a storage facility, I think that's an incredible amount of detail on the type of property that you could be looking for. And I really do see the value that you're looking for. Like, we no no Google page, no website. These are obviously going to be a little bit more mom and pop run, and we can go and make them more efficient, increase the income, increasing the value. And now the last part of this, so let's say we find it. And one, Ben, I love that you were doing door knocking and doing all that, man. That's just, that's what grinders do. And that's that athlete, that's that dog coming out in you, brother. But so we find this facility, we get it done. What type of banks are lending on these properties? Are there like storage specific banks that you work with or what do you look for on the financing side? So when I started, I didn't know that commercial lending can be creative, not only direct to seller, like the truly creative stuff, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know that you could negotiate terms with a bank. So like the very first deal I did, the bank basically said, Ben, here's the terms, 25 year amortization, 25% down. Here's your interest rate. Your balloon's going to hit in five years. You said, okay. But now I've realized that you can negotiate all of those terms with the bank and you have more room to negotiate based off of your track record, your experience in that asset class, how much liquidity that you have. And if you lack liquidity, you can bring in a partner to have a quote unquote balance sheet now to be able to negotiate with the bank. So I've always done either creative finance, which is holding a contract directly with the seller where the seller is now my bank. That's my favorite. But all of my other acquisitions have been with conventional financing. But one of the things that can be done with self-storage is you can get an SBA loan and put as little as 10% down. Now, that sounds initially really attractive, but there are strings attached. There are some upfront fees that you have to pay. There's an enormous amount of paperwork. And there's quite a bit of yearly auditing that goes along with it. And the process typically takes a little bit longer to close. So I have never done an SBA loan, but I know quite a few operators who have. They just said there's an enormous amount of brain damage getting to the closing table, but you're only putting 10% down, which is a pretty big deal. Right. Right. Yeah. Not having to put down as much money. And there is always the option if you find a killer deal to be able to find a partner that could come in and be your balance sheet if needed. And the thing that I I love about that, the negotiating with banks, right? One, you do need to get that experience. You need to get that work. They need to see that you're able to do stuff. But when you find a killer property, like you got to know it's a killer property and you got to be able to tell these guys, this is a killer deal. Any bank would lend on this thing in a minute. So I would actually like a lower interest rate or a longer AM term. Have you ever negotiated the amortization from a 25 to like a 30 on that? Oh, yeah. And here, here's the thing, though, is... I love social media, but I hate social media because so many of these podcasts now in social media just say, I need to submit 30 offers this week and I need to get this many term sheets from the bank. 
And going fast is huge and you can be successful. And it's basically a game of averages. If you don't submit offers, you don't get term sheets, you're not going to get deals done. But in order to get the good deals and negotiate the good terms with the bank, you need to spend your own personal time underwriting it, putting together a realistic and solid performance. And essentially, you need to build a little PowerPoint that says, here's a little bit about me and my track record. Here's why I like the deal. Here's what we're going to do to add value. Here's what it's going to be worth in a year, two years, five years. And you need to show and teach the bank why they should give you the terms that you desire. So basically what you're saying is that we should go in and take this business seriously as if we actually care about the asset that we're working on, make a presentation on it, just like we were back in high school when we had to give presentations and say, this thing is a killer for reason, this reason. This is why I'm a killer because I've done this and this is what I'm going to do to this property here. We're going to make this thing a stabilized asset that is cash flowing a ton and it's going to increase the value of it. It's going to be a good asset for you to hold on your books and it's only going to make you guys look better. Love that, man. It's all all about being professional. It sounds like common sense, doesn't it? If you want something, take it serious. (laughs) This world is not complex. There's these gurus that want you to sign up for their online courses to teach you how to do X, Y, and Z. It's not complicated. It's income minus expenses minus mortgage equals cash flow. If you keep things simple, it gives you the confidence to move a little bit quicker and get into the game. Yeah. And maybe you start with something a little bit smaller just to get that little bit of confidence and then go a little bigger. And then you see that going from small to a little bit, bit bigger is not that big of a jump. So I bet from a little bit bigger to a little bit bigger to bigger, bigger, you can just keep going bigger. Speaking of going bigger, let's talk about this $18.6 million deal. What's it look like? How are you financing it? What is the value you're thinking going to be at once you come in and execute on your operating plan? Yeah. Like I said earlier, that self-storage back when I got into it in 2018 through 2020, it wasn't the popular, it wasn't the sexy asset class. But today, it's one of the most highly demanded asset class for investors. And if you look at a lot of the quarterly reports that come out from some of the large publicly traded companies, self-storage has quietly become the safest asset class in the entire world. There are more billionaires that own self-storage than almost any other asset class. And so because of that, it's been extremely difficult to find So basically, the direct-to-seller still works, but because of the size of the facilities that I'm looking for now, I knew that the brokers were going to be the ones handling those. So I spent the last couple of years building great relationships with the brokers in the markets that I wanted. So this opportunity for this portfolio, which consists just about 1,500 storage units or 266,000 square feet, came off market from a broker. And they said, Ben, this is a little bit bigger than we think you want. But do you want to take a look at it? It's off market. We're only going to bring it to four or five people that we think can do it, that we know and have relationships with. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's take a look. And they basically sent it to me in some of the initial checkboxes that we discussed earlier of things that you look for in facilities where you can add value and eliminate expenses, check every single box. It also included 31 acres of expansion opportunity. That's really rare and worth a lot. So basically, 
we looked at it in the current environment with uh, some of the banking collapses and interest rates and inflation were not in our favor. But what we did in order to pull off a deal of this size, it's two times as big of any deal I've ever done. So how did we do that? And it basically came down to solving for something that we wanted to do. And so I just leaned on some relationships and we brought in a strategic partner. And this strategic partner is someone that I got introduced to through a member of GoBundance, which is our network. And he was a storage operator and coincidentally, a storage operator in the market of this portfolio. We basically had a conversation and said, this is bigger than anything I've ever done. This is bigger than anything I've ever done. Let's partner on it. We dated, we got together for lunch. We had a couple strategic meetings. We talked about each of our roles and we said, let's go for it. And because of that, his wife was the high school teacher of the seller's daughters. So now we had the personal relationship side. And then we brought the firepower of me and my partner that have built the track record and surpassed a big portfolio and known the brokers. Mm -hmm. So all of these things gave us negotiating firepower to convince the sellers that if you go under contract with us, we will close as expected. Dude, the partners, there's so much stuff to hit on there. I want to hit on the network and I know we don't have a ton more time, but two, like, Two guys in this networking group. So you already have GoBundance. Like that's a name behind you. All these guys are pretty solid guys, but we still need to have this dating period, right? And you go and you date. And like we said earlier, right? There's two guys here that had never done a deal of this size. Two Yu-Gi-Oh cards with level eight power and level eight power. And we put, I don't even play Yu-Gi-Oh. So I don't know how it works, but we put them together. Now it's 16, right? So now we can get that done. It's almost like you guys both have nine and nine power and you're doing an $18 million deal now, which is amazing, which is crazy. So what is what are you thinking the value is going to look like on this build, on this facility after like a stabilization plan? Yeah. So just initially, we know we can re- reduce expenses by about six to 7%. So instantly our cash flow goes up. And then we also realized that we can raise rent eight to 9% within the first three months. Mm. So that's about a 12% swing on income within three months. That's a big deal on any size real estate play. Yeah. But with the expansion opportunity, the relationship we have with the bank already and getting the terms that we've negotiated, we believe in less than three years, this will be worth over $22 million, not with no expansion. So right now we're projecting to hold on to this for about seven to 10 years. And at that time it should be worth 25 to 26 pretty easily. Oh man, we're just creating, just, just counting millies every single year, man. Here's the thing though. When I got started, that would intimidate me. And I would think in the tens of thousands Mm. for equity building and cash flow. right? Just think of the game Monopoly or Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow game. It's no different and as simple as what that game is when we were playing that when we were kids. Right. So don't let the, the millions intimidate you and don't think you can go do this. Because when I was starting, it was thousands yeah. were a big deal to me. So that's the difference. It's just add a couple zeros. And it sounds crazy and people are going to think I'm nuts, but I've been doing it for a few years and that's what I've realized. 
Yeah, and it really is just a game of let me step up, let me step up, let me step up. And each step up, maybe there's a few, there's a zero, another zero. And that's all it becomes is you just start seeing these numbers. Okay, then it really just comes down to executing, being able to execute on our plan, build a plan and make this happen. So Ben, one more tactical question I want to ask you, then another question, then we'll get to our final questions here and we'll make this quick. But market, finding a market, how do we know this is a good market for storage? No. So good question. So I spent a lot of time this past winter really focusing in on what asset classes I want to do, what markets I want to be in, and essentially refining my buy box or my criteria. And what it came down for markets for me is what are markets that I've either lived in, have family members that live in it, or have been to a multiple amounts of time. I'm not going to go to an Austin, Texas. I'm not going to go to a Nashville because I would get eight alive. I do not know anything about those markets other than they're in the newspaper and people talking about them because they're such hot real estate. I want to focus on areas where I'm the expert because I can add the value because I know what it takes to do that. So for me personally, I look at, essentially I've boiled down to 13 markets that I know extremely well and where I can act quickly. And then, you know, all of the other things where, yes, there's population growth, the household incomes are at a certain value, like those metrics are also important, but being the expert in the market that you want to invest in, I think should be the absolute number one thing you should look at. So here's my second question off of that. It's actually a completely separate question. So you're, <laughs> there's a whole minimal, and I don't, it, it won't take over the world, but I'm minimalist myself. I don't like having a lot of stuff and I don't, I could never see myself putting something in storage unless maybe my kid goes to college and I want to store something in that area. What do you see as the future for store it like the minimalist is not your customer that's not your client what do you see for the future of storage is america becoming more materialistic is the majority of your customer base like storing crap in these facilities or is it like a business owner who's keeping stock in there what do you so see there's a need for both so when i started about seven to eight percent of america rented a storage unit Today, it's almost up to 13 to 14% of the population uses a storage unit. There's a lot of statistics that point to why. My personal opinion is because of Amazon. If you just pull up a lawn chair and sit at the end of your driveway or watch how many boxes of stuff from Amazon come into your apartment building, that'll tell you why more people are putting things in storage. Mm. People can't get rid of things. Emotional attachment to your mom's and your great grandpa's antique furniture that you want to store because you can't get rid of. That's why the demand for storage continues to go up. Has that desensitized you to some of the things that you like? Are you able to detach from things a lot easier now that you've seen My wife and I are big minimalists as well. We, we move every two years. It's part of our real estate play. We buy a house, we add some valid equity. We don't pay any taxes on it. It's part of our play. Mm -hmm. So we, Purge our belongings every two years at minimum. Does it desensitize us? Am I an unemotional person? No, not at all. But I don't have ties to my bed 
or my head right. or my old fish tank or, you know, those things, right? None of that really gets me fired up that I want to keep it to give to my future kid. But there are certain things that I have emotional ties to like family heirlooms and I'll carry those with me for the rest of my life. Amazing, bro. I love it. Thanks for all the value today. Final questions here. What is one actionable step our listeners should take today to start on their path towards financial freedom? Just do it. I love Nike. I think it's the best little quote that's ever been created. And you just need to get started because if you don't actually do it and close on an investment, you're just going to analyze for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that all, I just made a post about this the other day. That all comes down to what is your goal? What do you want to do? Okay. This is what I want to do. Okay. Let me break it into the steps, which if you want to buy a self-storage facility, Ben did it in this episode. Okay. So let's break it into the steps. What is the step that is closest to you right now that you could take? All right. That's what it is. Take the damn step and then start moving that you're already one step closer to that goal than you were 10 minutes ago. So now let's keep doing that. And Ben said, bringing it back to his athletic athletic background here is just do it. Just go out there and do it. Last question I got for you, Ben, what is one question that you wish I would have asked or one topic that you wish I would have covered? And how would you have answered that question or how would you have expanded on that topic? That's a great question. And I've listened to plenty of your episodes, so I knew that you were going to ask it. And I've <laughs> thought a ton about it. And Honestly, the thing that's been on mine and my wife's mind is eventually when and what is enough, right? When we started our journey in investing, our goal was to own three single family houses to pay for our future kids' college. And now at the end of this deal, we'll have over 60 million in real estate holdings. Does that mean I have that much equity or cash in my bank? Zero, not even close. But I'm 33 years old. So if things continue to go right and the dominoes keep falling the way that they are, we should be very financially well off. Mm -hmm. So the question that we're talking about right now is what is enough? What is our current and future life going to look like? Mm -hmm. And to answer the question, which I know you want me to do, I don't have a clue. Right <laughs> now I'm having so much fun. Mm -hmm. And as a podcast host like you are, or an investor like I am, we do this because we're having so much fun and it's passionate right. and we wake up and we're excited. So right. my answer today would be when it's no longer fun or feels like a job, that's when it's enough. That's when it's enough. And maybe when the kids come along and you're looking to put more time into the kids and, and have all that focus there, man. I'll be their head coach. I will coach their sports. I'll be at every sporting oh, yeah. event. You're going to be a great dad, man. Yeah. I'm excited for you, bro. Hey, Ben, where can, where can my listeners and watchers find you online, man? Yeah. So the best would be Instagram, Ben underscore call, K-A-L-L. -L. Cool. Instagram, Ben underscore call. We will link that in the podcast show notes. And from the Financial Freedom Fest podcast, I'm your host, Matt Amabile. Today we had on Ben Call and we killed it by diving into the storage world man so much valuable and actionable content today ben call thank you for the time brother thanks so much Matt. thanks for listening Riding to the up. financial freedom, freedom fast, fast podcast. podcast the show that teaches you to buy back your time and live life on your terms be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and follow us online at matt amabile 
That's Matt, A-M-A-B-I-L-E. Be sure to tune in Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for our weekly podcast drops. Thanks for listening. Let's retire together.